Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Each day of the week, we have a different veteran service organization join us on the morning briefing to talk about the great work that they're doing for the veteran community. Each day, except for Monday. We had a different rotation of various groups coming through, but no one solid organization taking that Monday spot at 730. Now we have one. The Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America are going to join us every Monday, and they're kicking things off in style by sending Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for IAVA, to join us on the very first edition of them joining us on the show. Melissa, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And, of course, as I understand, you are one of my fellow veterans. So, Melissa, tell us just a little bit about your service, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were in. Well, I'm originally from Philadelphia. That has to be mentioned this week because it's been a very big week for Philly. So uh, fly, Eagles, fly. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm from a military family. Uh, my grandfather was killed in action in World War II. My father is Vietnam. And so my journey starts with my father uh, actually administering the oath of office to commission me into the Army uh, way back when. And um, I served a military intelligence officer in the Army for uh, just under nine years. And uh, then I went... I was a military intelligence officer, and so uh, my initial transition was to stay within the intel community. So I went to the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, was detailed to the Pentagon for a few years, uh, and doing secret squirrely kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, while I'm working in the Pentagon um, and at DIA and uh, working things like, you know, Iranian ballistic missile capability and, and other sexy things like that, uh, I had a crisis of conscience and decided that I really wanted to transition into nonprofit advocacy. Um, and so I used my GI Bill, um, went back to Georgetown, did a master's in policy there, used it as a springboard um, to jump into the advocacy world. And that's why I ended up at IAVA a little over a year ago. When you talk about, you know, transitioning and using the GI Bill, people might think, well, she was already an officer. Why did she need to use the GI Bill? There are plenty of officers who go back to school after they get out. But if you think back to that transition period, how would you say overall it went for you? As you said, you had a crisis of conscience. You decided to get out. You decided that there was something else that you wanted to do. And what was that like? I mean, was it an easy transition because you knew what you wanted to do or was it still difficult for you? It's still difficult. It's still a leap of faith. Uh, you know, I came from the government world where, you know, there is the uh, some sentiment among some in that, well, you, you have a nice, secure job. Why would you leave to do something else? And, you know, some, just like uh, being in the military is a calling. It's a, it's a call to service. And so I wanted to continue that service beyond my uh, civilian career, uh, beyond my civil service career, rather. And so, um, you know, I would say that the GI Bill is a, use, a resource for Everyone in the military, everyone should use it as best as they can, whether it's to change mid-career and to use as a springboard or a pivot into something different, um, whether it's to use for apprenticeships uh, or to uh, learn a different trade. It's, it's really a, a wonderful resource that all service members can use in their transition, and whether that's straight from active duty or after they've already been separated for a few years. 
You know, my next question, Melissa, was going to be what advice you would have for those who transition, but I think you just gave it in that the, using the GI Bill, particularly for officers who might not think about it, because, again, if you're an officer, you have a college degree, and they might think, well, I don't need to go back to school again. I've got my degree. It's time to do other things. That's not always the best course of action for a former officer, is it? No, it's not. I mean, look, in this environment, um, there's always room for growth. Everyone should continue to pursue learning throughout the entirety of your lifetime. Um, you know, I'm, some may think I'm a professional scholar, but, you know, I have a firm belief in education and the power of what it can do for you and in benefiting your future. Um, and it's not just as a means to an end, um, just in, enable to uh, explore your horizons. And so, it's definitely a resource that even officers should consider, um, especially if there's a transition that they're thinking of. Many officers um, and even senior NCOs may use it uh, to transfer to their dependents and their spouses, and that's a wonderful way to use the GI Bill as well. Uh, but from my personal experience, it really was um, invaluable in my transition. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America here on The Morning Briefing. And Melissa, let's talk a bit about that policy since that is your area of expertise. And let's start off with the uh, approval of a defense budget. Of course, we saw late last week there was uh, concern over, over a government shutdown. The shutdown ended up lasting for just a few hours before this budget went through. Where does IAVA stand on the defense budget and the approval that it got? How are you guys looking at this? Well, we are certainly pleased to see that uh, the government has remained open uh, this morning after a brief scare last night. And uh, we really wanted to mobilize our membership. We sent out uh, an email to all of our members last night. Uh, we mobilized over social media, which really is the bread and butter for IAVA in reaching the post-911 generation, to let them know the implications of a government shutdown and let them know the implications of uh, a defense budget that does not fully fund the military. We need to have predictable funding in order for the military to train, equip, and man its forces. Not being able to have that budget, not being able to do that long-range planning, it really does stymie the force. It really does impact um, across the spectrum of not just strategic planning from the top brass in the Pentagon, but you know some of the real-world anecdotes that we're hearing about uh, are for reservists, for example, who for two months in a row had drills canceled. Um, I heard just last night that in anticipation of another shutdown that uh, some of our reserve members were saying that their drills had already been canceled. And we heard this last month when it happened uh, before the January 20th uh, cutoff and many drills were canceled. And so that has a real-time impact. It has an impact to training for those units who are trying to refit. Some of them are going downrange and they need that training to get done. Um, and it also has an impact to the individual, uh, those who are relying on that paycheck, who are relying on that secondary income from their uh, drill pay. So that's just one aspect of where it impacts the individual. It also impacts the, the total force and uh, not having that, that budget so that they can really plan ahead. Uh, look, this is a military that is doing so much more with less. It strains the military. It harms national security. And so that's why IAVA really wants to ensure that our membership are aware of what happens when the defense budget is in peril. 
And that is certainly, uh, you know, a lot that you just listed there. And there are a lot of concerns, as we've seen. There are concerns in Congress, concerns in the military, with the defense budget, with fully funding everything. And I think we do forget uh, about the reservists in particular, those people who, uh, you know, are doing their thing. They're doing their one week in a month or two weeks a year. They're sometimes called up for a deployment or for active duty for extended periods of time. And in many cases do depend on that as a secondary source of income, along with uh, the ability to continue to serve. How often do you think reservists get lost in the shuffle when we talk about defense budget, since most people are focused on, you know, having active aircraft carriers, making sure that the tanks are all operating. How often do you think and how big of a deal do you think it is that reservists get kind of lost, uh, lost in, in all of the discussion when it comes to the defense budget? Uh, I think they get lost all too often. Uh, we have reservists who are on our staff at IVA and our senior staff, many who are amongst our membership who reach out to us on a regular basis and tell us, hey, look, we, we feel like we're getting screwed here. No one's you know, advocating for us. No one's speaking for us. And I know there are other organizations or there are VSOs that are out there that are in MSOs that are focused on the reserve space and want to ensure that they're getting their due. And IVA, because we know that we have the reach to our members through social media, and we really try to leverage that platform to give voice to the voiceless. And we really try to amplify those messages, especially from the Guard and Reserve in a shutdown. Because when a shutdown happens over the weekend, like did last year, and like was almost happening, or actually did happen, but for a few hours uh, uh, last night, it has an impact that sometimes gets lost in the national dialogue. Last uh, shutdown, major shutdown in 2013, back when I was still working in DOD, um, that you saw the optic of vets, World War II vets who were coming off of honor flights and trying to go to the World War II memorial, and that was shut down. That was, you know, taped off, and, and that was the horrible optic that everyone saw. And so that was mitigated a bit um, in that the parks remained open, although the bathrooms were still closed, uh, which is kind of disgusting. But that was mitigated a bit in this last shutdown back in January where people thought that it really didn't impact them. When I say people, I mean the general public really didn't think that the shutdown mattered to them. They didn't see how behind the scenes it was really impacting Burnham Reserve in a disproportionate way. And so we want to make sure that we're giving voice to them and their concerns and making sure that they don't get lost in all of this shuffle. We're speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of IAVA, and our first topic of discussion there was the defense budget. Now let's talk about something that's come up that has been, oh, a a hot topic of discussion, kind of a silly topic in a lot of people's opinions, but one that would cost a lot of money. And that is this military parade proposal. Apparently, the president asking the Pentagon to look into the possibility of holding a military parade. Uh, We've seen all manner of responses to that. I would say the majority that I've seen personally have been kind of, yeah, I don't think this is something that we really need. IAVA, you guys went a little bit farther than that and actually took a poll on this military parade proposal. What can you tell me about the results of that poll? Yeah, uh, we polled our uh, members. We sent out an email blast to our members. We had a huge response, 100% completion rate. It's something that really shows the passion that people feel about this topic. And 70% of our members uh, responded to us saying that they did not want to see a military parade. Uh, I think the sentiment is very clear amongst the post-911 generation on this. 
It, it certainly seems that the majority of responses that I've seen have been uh, in that manner and coming from really all sides. This does this isn't a uh, a political division. Uh, this is one thing that it seems the majority of veterans have come together on and saying, yeah, we don't really need to do that. And the cost of it would be a concern. And that's something we've been talking about on the show as this issue has come up over the past week or so, uh, where, I mean, that's, that's going to take a lot of money, especially if you're bringing equipment into town. Uh, producer of the show, Jake, is a former tanker. He was telling us just how difficult it would be to get tanks up from the closest location where they're kept. I think he said the closest one he was aware of is down in Georgia. I mean, d- this wouldn't be, I don't think, and you're a policy officer, chief policy officer at IVA. you could probably tell me more. This probably wouldn't be the most efficient way of spending funds, would it? Uh <laughs> Probably not. I mean, look, there's an argument to be made for recruiting and for all the wonderful things that uh, the military spends money on uh, in order to show national pride, to show the pride in our in our service members, and to uh, you know show our, our might. But this, this isn't the way that we we think is the most constructive. Um, you know, as one of your producers noted, I mean, this absolutely would be a heavy lift for the military. I mean, you're bringing in tanks and and other you know heavy vehicles in from all corners of the United States. Um, bringing in troops to to march, and I mean, let me tell you, from what we're hearing, uh, many don't want to to work on, frankly, what's their day off. I mean, it was proposed that this would be on you know Memorial Day or Veterans Day, and uh, you know that's a day where they would like to to have rest. In fact, that's something that uh, IVA has advocated in our policy agenda for many years and saying that we would like to see in private sector give people the day off for Veterans Day and for that to be nationally recognized um, in, in, a, in a more thorough way. And so it's just overall it's not popular. It's not something that uh, would be probably the most uh, effective use of, of funds. Uh, I think the 1991 parade, which was our last uh, victory parade following Desert Storm, Desert uh, Shield, was around $8 million. So, um, you know, even adjusting that for inflation, that cost alone, uh, that, that, that really isn't money that we need to be spending right now on this, especially as, you know, we're entering our 17th year of war. So, uh, you know, it really begs the question of where are we putting our resources Hmm. It certainly does. And there are a lot of questions surrounding the parade, a lot of questions surrounding defense funding overall. And of course, there are those who would bring up the fact that the military is spending a lot of money, as we've learned over the past few years, to have things like a military flyover at football games. And I think the argument has been made from some people, I've actually had some on the show make it, saying, you know what, we have a budget for recruiting, and if this is what they want to use it for, that's fine. If it's for public relations and they use that budget, that's fine. Uh, It's an interesting thing, but again, the response from the veteran community has by and large been more of a eh, no thanks than anything else. So interesting to hear about IAVA's uh, poll results on that military parade, which came out late last week. Now, I want to talk to you about another thing that, uh, of course, I've been familiar with. I've heard quite a bit about this uh, over uh, quite a bit of time, I should say, and that is the She Who Born the Battle campaign. And to give people a brief uh, description of what this issue is, it's that the VA's motto is a quote from Abraham Lincoln that says, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. IAVA has taken some issue with that motto because, well, him, his, it's very specifically referring to male veterans. So what's the status of the She Who Born the Battle campaign at this point? Well, the She Who Born the Battle campaign encompasses several asks. You, you highlighted on the motto, that's one thing that we've asked directly of uh, the VA secretary to, to look into and to consider a gender-neutral motto. 
look, we're not trying to change Abraham Lincoln's quote, but we do want to ensure that the VA reflects from the top down, reflects in their um, overall climate change, if you will, in showing that the VA is a welcome place for women. And women don't feel comfortable. And we think that, that the motto is, a symbol- is symbolic of the fact that women don't feel comfortable receiving care in the VA. Um, that's just one part of it, you know, that ask of, of the executive branch and of the VA secretary specifically, uh, which is within his purview to make that change because that's been something that's been uh, proven throughout history um, to set precedent for, rather, throughout history that that's within his purview. Separately within the She Born the Battle campaign is the Deborah Sampson Act. And within the Deborah Sampson Act, named for a Revolutionary War uh, heroine, uh, first woman that, uh, we, that we know that fought for the United States uh, in the Revolutionary War, and uh, which uh, ironically was just parodied on Drunk History, if you didn't catch it. It's quite funny. But, um, you know, we want to ensure that the care and recognition for women is also a part of the conversation. And within the Deborah Sampson Act, uh, which has strong bipartisan support, uh, 54 co-sponsors in the House and 24 in the Senate. Uh, we want to ensure that the services uh, that are provided by the VA uh, really do provide the total care for women, everything from peer-to-peer counseling to help them navigate the Byzantine bureaucracy of the VA and talking with someone who is a, a woman and, and you know maybe even a combat vet like they are. Uh, and then we also want to ensure that there's uh, legal services, that there's most importantly uh, recording of data in a gender-specific way, because a lot of the VA information and a lot of the the, uh, the knowledge that they've gathered over the years on uh, those who seek care from the VA um, isn't always reported in a gender-specific way, and, and knowing that helps to know where you can forecast uh, additional services that are needed in the future for a certain population. And so those are just some of the, the highlights that we want to see as a part of the Deborah Sampson Act and the investment that we want to see the VA make in women. We're the fastest-growing population of veterans, and we want to ensure that the, you know, 11% of us now going into upwards of 20% uh, in the next uh, 10, 20 years are taken care of as we move forward in our lives. You know, there are some people that would argue that the the motto issue has kind of overshadowed everything else that you just talked about. Those who would say that, you know, there, there's other things to deal with. You clearly know that. You just listed off a litany of issues that need to be dealt with. But I think most people are, are have focused more on the motto change issue because they see it as something where, you know, this is what Lincoln said. Why are we going to change what he said? What are we going to do with this? Um, do, do you think that's been detrimental at all, the focus on the motto issue? Or do you think that it's been helpful in bringing overall attention to the She Who Born the Battle cause? Uh, well, we hope that any attention is good attention, right? And that the fact that people are at least having this conversation, that's a good thing. And uh, again, it's not a matter of revisionist history. It's a matter of evolution. And everywhere throughout military history, we have precedent for recognizing that mottos, alma maters, um, you know, you name it, have changed throughout military history to recognize that women are a part of this too, and that it needs to be something more inclusive of all of those who fight. It's not just about um, making it, you know, for women. It's about making it inclusive for everyone who has borne the battle. So um, the Air Force Academy has done something similar with, uh, with their motto that once said, bring me men. Um, you hear of even in other countries right now, this is something that uh, just caught on in Canada, where they're changing their anthem to be more inclusive. And so, 
you know, I think that there really is um, a need for discussion on what it means to be inclusive of all of those in an all-volunteer force who raise their hand and say, send me. And if you have all of those who are raising their hand and saying, send me, but then are also saying, I don't feel comfortable, um, I, I don't necessarily feel welcomed in the VA, well, this is a, a way in which you can bring everyone into the fold, and this is a very tangible way in which you can say, we appreciate what Abraham Lincoln spoke for, um, you know, back when he made that, uh, that comment during his uh, second inaugural. We appreciate the history of it. But like our military, it has evolved. And I think that that would speak volumes if the VA evolves and shows that command climate from the top down by embracing a gender-neutral motto. Right. And certainly, uh, certainly a stance that when explained and not just we want to change the motto that there's a little bit more nuance to it. I think more people can appreciate the fact that women now comprise such a large portion of both the military and veteran communities. Things change over time. That's one of those things that we know is going to happen. Well, we've been speaking with Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, former Army officer, and currently working to do what she can to help veterans out there through campaigns like She Who Born the Battle and the Deborah Sampson Act legislation. Of course, also speaking today on the defense budget and the military parade proposal and what IAVA's membership is saying about that. Now, Melissa, if people are interested in finding out more about IAVA, more about She Who Born the Battle and all the rest of the things that IAVA is working on right now, where can they go to get that information? Well, you can go to IAVA.org slash advocacy, and in going to IAVA.org slash advocacy, you can find out everything that we're doing in Washington. Uh, you can find the legislation that we support. You can find a lot of the, uh, the issues that we, we talk about um, on our IAVA.org website overall. You'll find informative blogs that talk about things like impending shutdown and what you need to do uh, in case you're, um, if your VA or your um, other benefits are impacted by that, or if you're in DOD, if that's has an impact to you. And then for She Who Born the Battle specifically, we have a, a hub that really captures everything about our campaign, and that's on shewhobornthebattle.org. And you can find out a lot more uh, about the campaign specifically there. I'd also encourage folks to follow us on social media. You can follow us on, on Twitter and Facebook, um, on Twitter at, at IAVA, uh, where you can always find a lot of the information that I just talked about on our website. We push it out to the community as far and wide as possible. Melissa Bryant, Chief Policy Officer for IAVA. Thank you so much for joining us on The Morning Briefing. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.